everybody. This is Lori Rudiman. Welcome to Punk Rock HR. Today's guest is Emily O'Brien. She's the founder of a company called Comeback Snacks. What does a Canadian millennial entrepreneur know about making a comeback? Well, quite a bit. In today's episode, we talked to Emily about her personal journey from a sales professional at a global corporation to an entrepreneur to a convicted felon and then back again to an entrepreneur who's really trying to give back and make amends and help her community. There are a lot of motivational bros out there who like to say that the setback is a setup for the comeback. But in this story, I think that's actually true. If you'd like to hear about people who overcome their worst instincts and turn it around, well, I think you're going to love this conversation with Emily O'Brien. Hey, Emily, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm so glad you're here. Thank you for making time with me today. I'd love to know how to describe you, how to introduce you to my audience, because you've got a couple different iterations of your life that we're going to talk about today. So when you tell your story, where do you begin? I talk about... That's actually a good question because honestly, you're right. I had a great childhood. I grew up pretty relatively normal and then I got in some trouble. But I also realized that I was more than the trouble. And I created a a social enterprise where I could help others get out of that trouble. Well, and I mean, that is the dream, right? I mean, all of us face obstacles, face hurdles, and you admitted to what's been going on in your life and you've turned that around. So let's maybe start there. You had this terrific childhood and then things kind of took a left turn. What happened? I had kind of gone to university. I graduated with with honors. You know, I was always very motivated, always a go-getter, always very curious. You know, my mom would always find me in my room with books all the time and music and when I got into high school, because I was so introverted as a kid, I didn't really know how to socialize. And so that's kind of when I first got introduced to like drinking and drug use. So obviously, I kind of with my like boisterous personality, I kind of went full speed ahead, got into some trouble with the law, not big trouble. And then I went to university, again, graduated with honors and started my career, realized that maybe a career wasn't something that I really wanted. I wanted to build my own career. Wait, wait, what kind of career did you start? I started working in sales, actually, like corporate sales. So like driving around and meeting people. And I was really good at it, but it wasn't like a product that I really cared about. So I was like, if I can do this, maybe I can create a product that I... Or a system or something that I care about where I'm more passionate about what I do. And so after doing some world traveling, I moved back to... Let's just say Toronto because people are more familiar with Toronto. I started my own social media business. And with this business came like lots of partying and you know more drinking, lots of events, lots of deals done in the early hours of the morning. And I thought that's what I had to do to make my business survive. I thought I had to be like that party girl. And you know, sure, I got I got the deals and I did well, but it was taking an extreme toll on my mental health and so much that I ended up latching on to someone that didn't have the best intentions for me. And because I had been using a decent amount of cocaine and alcohol at the time, I agreed to go on a trip with them when I knew they weren't the best person in the world. But again, it was the quick escape from what I was dealing with. And I, uh, I ended up having drugs strapped to my body and put on an airplane and then getting arrested at the airport in Canada on the way home. Oh my God. I have so many questions. I know. Me too. So like, first of all, when you were creating your business, you mentioned that you felt like drugs and alcohol were part of the scene and part of what was going on. Do you think it was really important? Because I do think there's this way that business gets done and it is done 
through drugs and it is done through alcohol. So that's kind of a natural way to grow your business for a lot of individuals. So do you see that? Was that real for you? Like, was that really the way business had to get done? Because I believe it is in some industries. What do you think? I thought it was too. And it was also like really easy. Like I didn't have to work very hard. Like my working was going out and meeting people, but they could see me in person and seeing how passionate I was about what I was doing. But I honestly did think that that's what I needed to do. And I'm sure now my business now, I lose business because of it, but at least I don't lose myself. And you need to have yourself to run a good business. You know, sometimes I think drugs and alcohol and parties are the only way that women can get access to some of these rooms and some of these deals. And so what I guess I think is, I don't blame you for taking that route in the business world, because sometimes that's the only way to get our foot in the door as young women. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying it wasn't fun. Like I definitely had a lot of fun. You know, it wasn't like, oh, I'm hating this life. Like that's because that's not true, right? Like it was awesome. And like, I've always been social. And then this just like amplified my socialness. And I could go to like four parties in a night. Right. And so when you're actually partying with people or drinking with people, that's when they're most vulnerable, I think. Right. Like that's when they tell you everything and they tell you things maybe they shouldn't. Right. So as opposed to being in a boardroom where everyone's often very stiff and, you know, by the book, you can kind of bend the rules a little bit after hours. There's certainly a level of intimacy that you don't get when you're trying to do a deal in someone's cubicle or in someone's lobby in a conference room. So you're absolutely right. So you've got this company that you've created and you're working hard and yet you're burned out, it sounds like, and you need a break. And you've got someone in your life who isn't the best force for you, but you're attached to that individual and you travel. Where do you go? Where do you travel? We went to St. Lucia, which was in Caribbean and it was an all-inclusive. And the reason that I thought he was actually good for me was because he told me that I didn't need to be the partying one. He told me that I didn't need to be drinking. So I was like, oh my God, this guy actually has my best intentions at heart. I was like, he's so different. But really, it was just like all part of this whole elaborate charade that I didn't see past or that I maybe saw a little bit of and decided to ignore it. So you fly back from St. Lucia with drugs strapped to your body. Mm -hmm. Two kilograms of cocaine. How does that happen? Well, we were in St. Lucia and we got there on the Friday. And by the Wednesday, like the first couple of days were great, fun. And then on the Wednesday, he, his personality really changes. And he's like, well, we're actually here to work. And you know, these people are coming to pick us up at three o'clock and you're getting in the cart with me. Still, I didn't think that that was the end. I, th I thought maybe I was just going for a car ride. But then we go there and I find out he's in a bunch of debt, supposedly. And he's actually told these people who I am, my passport identity, and told them that I was going to be bringing stuff back. And so I didn't have anyone down there to trust except for him. I couldn't just like run away in the middle of this rural place in St. Lucia where you don't know anyone. I had to stick with him. So you stuck with him, got on a plane, and came back to Canada. And were you arrested right away when you landed? Not right away. Like we got through the first batch of security, but I think they knew because I was a nervous wreck. You know, I didn't want to do it. I told them that I was not comfortable with it, but I wanted to go home. And he just couldn't seem to tell how uncomfortable I was with it. And it just radiated off me how uncomfortable I was. And they must have picked up on it and called this into secondary screening. And after answering about 10 to 12 questions, the final one being, Oh, do you have drugs on you? I couldn't lie. Was he arrested as well? Yes. Once you're arrested, at least here in the States, a lot of doors close immediately for you. A lot of opportunities, your life starts to get smaller. And then as you start to move through the legal system, it gets even smaller and smaller and smaller. And so you go to jail, but just because you come out of jail, it doesn't mean that you come out with your life that you had before you were arrested. So can you talk us through what happened with your sentencing and did you do any prison time? 
Yes, I spent two and a half years on bail. So going through the courts. And that's when I was on house arrest. So I had to move out of my apartment, move in with my mother. So you're telling a 26-year-old who has just been scooped up by the authorities that you know she's guilty for this and responsible for this. You have to up end your whole life. You know, I had to kind of tweak the nature of my business that I was currently running so that I... I was going to ask, could you work? Yeah, luckily I could because I like could only basically leave the house for work. And so because I had my own business, I was able to kind of go different places with the work. But every day was still... I was still a nervous wreck. So then I got sentenced to actually... After two and a half years of just waiting, then I get sentenced. And the time you spend waiting doesn't count as part of your sentence. So they sentenced me to four years. Did you do four years? I did a year and then I did six months in a halfway house. And now I'm on parole still. So I have about a year and a half left. What's that experience like? Because you've had your freedom for 26 years, then you have a constrained version of freedom, right? Some of the doors have closed while you're awaiting sentencing. And then you go into prison as someone who comes from a relatively privileged background and a good life. I mean, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, in a way, I was kind of looking forward to it. And I think the reason that I was looking forward to it was because I know I needed time away from the world. I knew I needed time to sit and think. I needed time to really get off the alcohol and just be alone with my thoughts and find a new way to be creative. Like I knew I needed that. But I also had hope because of my privilege. Like I had my parents that were visiting me. My parents were in the courtroom. My parents let me live in their house. They would pay for my phone. Like my outcome was successful because of like all these other factors, like myself included. Like you can pile on privilege as much as you want, but if someone does, doesn't want to change, there's tons of privileged people that, you know, like white collar crime that just go in and come out the same. Yeah. I was thinking about your story and, you know, you had your parents, but when you face an addiction, you are alone, right? I mean, that is a very isolating experience. And so would you consider yourself addicted to alcohol and drugs? I guess is my first question. I think I'm, I'm addicted to people. And being around people and connecting to people. And I chose alcohol and drugs because that was the easiest way and the funnest way, I thought. And that was just something like I drank all through university and that's what worked for me at the time. And like now I see that's not true. But being in prison, you actually have to socialize with people without your phone. You know, like even if you go out, we see people, whether or not drinking, we might be on our phone, right? Like we're always addicted to doing something else while we're with people. And being in prison, you actually have really good conversations with people without a phone, without texting someone in the middle of a conversation, looking something up and just you actually learn to communicate the proper way. And so that's how it actually helped me. I can see how prison forces you to be mindful in a weird, unfortunate way. Absolutely. I'm thinking a little bit about... So in my family, we have a lot of drug convictions. We've got some murderers. We've got some people who've been arrested and convicted on sexual assault, right? I mean, the typical American family, I guess. I don't know what to say about that. And a lot of times they have court-ordered mandated sobriety. So did the court order that for you? Yes. Yeah. I'm on parole and I'm not allowed to drink and do drugs. And that's fine. You know, obviously there's parts about it that I miss. Like you see, I feel like I see so many podcasts where people are like, oh, I don't miss it at all. And like, that's not the case for me. You know, of course I miss going to Christmas and getting wasted, but like the benefits don't outweigh the costs. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So we've got this period of your life that could really derail any individual, privilege or not, right? They can go through this. They could choose to double down on some negative behaviors, but you chose a different path. When do you think that choice started? That choice started halfway through my bail period. So after I got arrested, but before I went to prison, because after I got arrested, I was still very, very confused. I was in shock. I still didn't really know how much trouble I was in. And I was still in denial. And I was very angry at the person that had harmed me. 
So all those factors don't really allow for healing and growth. So I had to be patient. And it actually took me to get... I actually got arrested a second time because I didn't obey my conditions because I was rebelling against them. Wow. That puts you at a huge disadvantage though to argue for like a lighter sentence, right? And Oh yeah. I came up in my parole hearing. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. I bet it did. <laughs> you made a decision. You started to make the decision what after your second arrest that you were going to do your life differently. Tell me about that. I began to really reflect on all my accomplishments and all the people that believed in me. And I also began to look at all the ways that I'd hurt people. And at the time when I was hurting them through my substance abuse, like showing up to my grandparents, I was completely annihilated, not showing up to family things. And these are the people that were there for me. And I was like, holy crap, like this is real. Like this denial is baseless, right? So I really realized that my family was my anchor and my one shot and they were on my side, but they were getting really tired of the bull that came along with the substance use because it does kind of turn you into... Not necessarily an evil person, but definitely a more selfish person. And I was also grieving too, right? Like I was going through so many things because I had lost all my freedom and I was confused. Like I thought I knew this person. And so it's just like your family's in shock. Meanwhile, you're in shock. So it's like so many emotions happening. Then I just looked at all my past accomplishments and I was like, I can do this. Like I know I can and I'm better than this and I can beat it. So your first step in making these changes is to really take accountability. And to apologize, I would imagine, and continue to stay sober and to do great work, right? On yourself individually while you're in prison. But then you're sent to a halfway home after a year and then you're eventually released. Where do you go after the halfway house? For the first couple of months, I moved back into my mom so I could just continue to save money. But then I knew it was kind of time to move on and fly out of my nest again. At that point, I was 30. <laughs> Your mom's probably like, come on already. Yeah. <laughs> she wanted me to stay actually. Oh. Like, I know. Because we'd actually grown very, very close because of this. I think the journey that we experienced together is disastrously beautiful because it made us so much stronger and understand each other so much more. And she's like, oh, I don't want you to go. And you know, she saw seen me grow throughout this whole time. And, and I've supported her because like my her and my dad broke up and that was a very alone time for her. And so having her daughter there, but I was like, Mom, I gotta move out. I gotta have a dating life again. Like I can't be more <laughs> <laughs> for dinner to my mom's house. Like, oh my goodness. Well, your mom sounds like a real trooper, like just an amazing woman who's strong and who was there for you. So that's pretty great. And you as well there for your mom. So you move out and you decide, all right, I want to redo my life, right? I want to reboot. But I know in my own family that options for convicted felons are pretty small. Like the kind of work that they can do is pretty limited. And here in the United States, even if they want to start their own business and be an entrepreneur, there are all kinds of rules against them. They can only take out certain types of loans and they're not eligible to take out other types of loans. I mean, it's very complicated. What's your journey like when you decide, I need to do this? I knew that it was going to be filled with challenges. And instead of like fighting against challenges that I'm facing in a negative way, I wanted to battle this challenge in a positive way and build something constructive. Because I was, I spent two and a half years on bail challenging the system, fighting, right? And I was like, this fighting is wearing me out. I was like a fish that already was hooked, right? And like, no matter how hard you fight. But then I knew that I could use this like energy in me and like my drive to build something good. And especially with my lived experience, I knew that it would be authentic and personal to me. And that's like really what you need to build a business that you'll have a passion for like indefinitely. Yeah. So what business did you build? I started a popcorn business and I actually started it in prison. And I found inspiration behind bars. And I realized like my story 
was similar, but then so different from the others, right? But there was one thing that I really noticed and that was that everyone in there really just wanted to see their family again. They wanted to see their kids again. They wanted to get out and work again and, you know, stop being so dependent on on substances. Like they wanted to do better. And it doesn't make us look good as a society when we're like, we're going to put you in jail and then kick you once you're out, right? So like, how does that make us look? I think that's really weak as a society. It doesn't help us like economically. It doesn't help us grow. Like if we're going to cut X number of people out of our workforce, what does that do to our economy? Doesn't make any sense. You're in this really unique position where not only are you an entrepreneur, but you're also an employer. You're a boss. You're a job creator. So tell us a little bit about that journey. I knew that like I wanted to create a way for other people to work and live in a comfortable work environment. And for me, like what I noticed, like even if you're employing a regular person, they don't want to be honest about who they really are a lot of the time. A lot of the time they're writing up resumes, like embellishing them, you know, they're making their social media so perfect. And then behind closed doors or someone else. And I was like, okay, I think the best way to create, you know, a team where the culture is healthy, it's honest, it's authentic is by letting people be honest. And, you know, it's like, okay, sure, you can talk about, you know, your drug addiction if you don't want to come to work because you're honestly sad today or depressed or, but so many people are scared to be that way. And that's why they, often turn to substances. Whereas like if you can create a supportive environment where people can talk to you, it, it actually ends up being a form of therapy. And so that my staff have been there since day one, pretty much. So there are pressures in owning a business and being an entrepreneur that drive many entrepreneurs to drink, to use drugs, and also to do other things to deal with depression and anxiety. Like the life of an entrepreneur is not easy. So what's your journey like? And how do you deal with some of those pressures? For sure. Entrepreneurship can be like oversaturated and the most isolating thing at the same time. You know, you can have one day where it's like you're doing 29 things, but you're also by yourself. Yeah, it's terrible for recovery. Absolutely. So honestly, but exercise has been so important to me. Like when the quarantine started, I bought a treadmill for my room because I knew that that's like what I need to sleep better. And as an entrepreneur, you have a lot of energy. And I was like, I can't just be fidgeting in my bed. And often I would sometimes take alcohol and drugs to calm down or to sleep or to stay awake or something. So I just kind of found exercise as a healthier way to do that. But even exercise, you can still overdo it. What's your business like these days? I mean, you've got a couple of weird things happening in the economy, right? The coronavirus and the economic impact from that. So like what's going on with Comeback Snacks? Well, Comeback Snacks was actually started in an environment of adversity. It was started in an area where people were stressed out and very uncertain about their future, but they wanted something that brought them together. And so I think now more than ever, Comeback Snacks is like relatable because that's why we started is to get through something together is to build collective resiliency. And so that's how we're kind of like, share your journey through popcorn, find comfort through popcorn. Yeah, I encourage that everyone can make a comeback, but we just have to try like comebacks aren't given to you. Right. Even if we are in an environment we can't control, we still have to put the work in. Yeah, I absolutely love that. So tell us about your product line. Like, what do you offer? We have about nine different flavors right now. There's four caramel varieties. So the first original flavors, and these were recipes kind of crafted from the inside. One of them was lemon pepper dill. The other one is called jailhouse cheese, where it's craft dinner powder, and then we just put it on the popcorn. <laughs> we have peanut butter and honey, and we have Sweet sriracha. That was one that was created outside prison because sriracha is actually a weapon. Hot sauce is a weapon. So you can't have that in prison. So you've got a company that was created in the midst of chaos, uncertainty, you know, a little, a little personal tragedy, right? But yet you've been innovative with it. And I wonder where do you go with a popcorn company? Like what's next for you? How do you grow it? I think we want to just expand our geographic reach. 
right? So right now we've been working on our second brand update. And then we've also partnered with a local popcorn producer. Honestly, branding and stuff takes a long time when you're doing events and stuff. So this sort of downtime hasn't really been downtime. It's been uptime because we're, we're building up. And so there's always like ways to find inspiration through no matter what situation you're in, like even if it's a shitty situation, but it's just like you have to like not play the victim card for sure. Well, I find that to be really interesting because most entrepreneurs don't play the victim card at all. That's not in their DNA. And I certainly don't hear that language in you. But I also wonder, what are you doing to work on you during this time? Because leaders who don't learn and grow don't stay leaders for very long. So, I mean, you exercise, right? And you're taking care of your own well-being. But how do you grow as a leader? How do you challenge yourself to do better? Connecting with more people, reading more books for sure. Like when I was in prison and I was limited in my ability to go places, I read. And so I find the more that I read, I'm also like taking random courses, like random math courses and stuff. And I'm also mentoring people that are building their own business. So that's every Tuesday. Wow, that's really great. Well, I am certainly betting on you. I feel good about this business. I feel good about your trajectory. And one of the things that I find with my audience is that they often are really open to new ideas around the world of work and business and employment. And you've talked a little bit about your journey. That was difficult, but here you are in a better place. You employ people who've also had a troubled past. What do you want executives and HR professionals and leaders to know about your story? And how do you make it real for them? Like, what should they take away from this? I think that a lot of people that land up in prison are incredibly talented. Like you'll find a drug dealer and a CEO, like their only difference is what they use their creativity for. And it's creativity for destructive purposes and CEOs do it for constructive purposes. But being a drug dealer requires all the same skills. Right. You have to be shrewd. You have to keep track of your money. You got to get your marketing in order. Right. You got to have good people that work for you. So they're very similar. So if we're like, Oh, you went to prison, that actually makes you a stronger person. So I would be looking at the people that maybe worked in the drug trade or, you know, got mixed up in other things because they've been through very difficult times. And so they're tough. You know, they're not going to be like, Oh, I'm having a bad day. I'm going to go home. It's like, I'm going to come to work every day. Because a bad day for them like has to be something like really, really bad. <laughs> like back in jail for it to be a bad day. <laughs> you know, you don't have to tell me twice that CEOs are kind of like psychopaths because I already know that. <laughs> I know that firsthand working in the world of business. Well, it's been a real treat to get to know you and hear your story. And if people want to learn about you or find out more about you, where do they go? What do they read? Sure. Like they can head to my website, www.comebacksnacks.com or on Instagram's Comeback Snacks. If you Google Emily O'Brien popcorn, you'll see like a whole bunch of articles just pop up. And then my personal Instagram is ems.obrien. And yeah, message me, email me, anything. I'm very open to meeting new people. And that's how we met. So I was like, yes, let's chat. Let's do it. I think that's great. And I really appreciate your leadership, your mentorship, and also how candid you are about your story. So thanks again for being a guest. Thank you so much. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Emily O'Brien. If you'd like to connect with her and learn more about her or Comeback Snacks, you can head on over to laurierudeman.com forward slash punkrockhr dash 112. This episode of Punk Rock HR was produced as always by Danny Osmond and his team at Emerald City Productions. Now, I know you're interested in podcasting, so head on over to emeraldcitypro.com to learn more about how you can get started. Now, that's all for today, and I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time on Punk Rock HR. Punk Rock HR.